If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. If you're looking for the perfect Christmas gift, why not take out a subscription to BBC History magazine for just $34.99? That's a saving of over 50% on the shop price. A subscription is a present that can be enjoyed all year round and every issue will be delivered direct to their door. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash history 2020. If you're based in the US or Canada, you can subscribe for just $55. To find out more and for all other countries, head to buysubscriptions.com forward slash history 2020. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The Reformation of the 16th century is one of the defining events in Christian history, but it also had a profound effect on the lives of Europe's Jews and their relations with their Christian neighbours. This is the subject explored by the historian Kenneth Austin of the University of Bristol in his new book, The Jews and the Reformation, and he spoke to BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. Kenneth, considering that the Reformation was essentially an internal Christian event, why do you feel that it's very important to consider the Jewish dimension? It's a good question. Um, I think I think I suppose there's there's two main reasons. I mean, I think the the first the first thing is that actually the Jewish presence uh, in Europe is a uh, is significant. You're right, or they're 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 a relatively small group, but they still constitute maybe something like one percent of the the population. So they are uh, a substantial um, uh, religious minority within uh, that Christian context. But I think equally, uh, thinking about Jews. Uh, Jewish presence uh, in Europe in the Reformation also then tells us quite a lot about what mattered to the Christian majority uh, as well. So thinking about uh, how uh, Christians look towards uh, Jews of the Bible, uh, Jewish language and culture, the relationship between Judaism and Christianity, all of these things uh, I think uh, allow us to understand better what is going on in the minds of uh, the Christians during the Reformation era. And so prior to the Reformation, how would you describe relations between the Christian and Jewish communities in Europe? Ambivalent at the at the very least, I think uh, on the one hand, uh, there is uh, an, in, an enthusiasm, a, a positive dimension towards Jews um, at various places. It, it, it explains why Jews 
are invited into large parts of the the continent um, gradually through the Middle Ages, going from uh, the southern fringes of Europe, invited into northern Europe, um, invited in by uh, political leaders uh, often who see in the Jews uh, an opportunity to modernize their economies. Famously, maybe stereotypically, Jews uh, often hold the role of moneylenders in society, but act as tax collectors uh, as well. And those roles that they uh, pursue allow uh, economies in in Europe to to develop. Um, and especially in the early stages, and when we're uh, when those Christian societies are seeing relatively small numbers of Jews, it, it's quite um, quite straightforward uh, to have the, the Jews there. As their numbers grow, uh, there becomes um, maybe slightly greater tensions. Um, but those only really start to to become apparent in in the 13th century, um, uh, and indeed, I think sort of one of the one of the things I, I, I probably try and say about the medieval period is the the extent to which actually good relations are more the norm. Uh, I think sort of the the historical record and certainly the the impression that one has is of constant conflict, animosity and so on. But actually through most of the period uh, and in most communities, um, relations are relatively um, harmonious. Um, It's difficult because there are certainly uh, a range uh, of accusations that are made against Jews uh, in the Middle Ages um, that they try and kill, kill uh, individual Christian children, for instance, that they try and uh, cause harm to the host, the, the bread that's used in the, the mass, uh, and so on. And these these stories do spread through uh, the Middle Ages uh, and, and generate um, great anxiety uh, on the part of uh, Christian uh, communities uh, at, at times, But those still seem to be relatively isolated episodes. They generate a lot of attention in that in in the in that sort of particular uh, time period. Um, And and where there is anti-Semitism in the in this period, how similar is that to the anti-Semitism of today, or are there clear differences? I think I prefer it, certainly talking about this period to re- use the term anti-Judaism. I think anti-Semitism has um, kind of racial overtones and is very much a, a product of uh, the, the 19th century discourse uh, around, around Jews um, uh, and kind of gives almost a, a pseudo-scientific uh, justification to uh, treating the Jews as other. I think in the in the period that I'm dealing with in the in the late Middle Ages and into the the Reformation era, uh, Jews are yes they are kind of seen as different, but it's a, it's fundamentally a religious difference uh, that they they are they are understood uh, to be, uh, and so it is about the the relationship. Um, between those communities understood in those terms uh, that and that's the reason I think sort of why anti-Judaism that that perhaps 
does have a, a, a more theological dimension at its core. So I think part of the tension in the relations between Jews and Christians is actually because they have so much in common. That kind, They are part of that Judeo-Christian tradition, as we now call it. Um, they both have the Old Testament in common, but they have gone in sort of different ways uh, thereafter. Um, but actually their, their um, uh, theologies... Have much in common. They're, 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 they're sharing that uh, same uh, text. It's then whether or not um, Jesus was the Messiah, um, and whether the the New Testament uh, or the Talmud, um, the, as the, the the Jewish equivalent or the Jewish uh, successor to to the Old Testament, uh, carries greater greater weight. Now, Martin Luther was, I think it's fairly well known, he harboured anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish beliefs. How much did that feed into his actions during the Reformation? It kind of seems that that it drives, it is one of the driving forces uh, for him. Uh, and, uh, and actually, it, it leads to quite positive aspects uh, early on, or relatively speaking, at least. I think there's a, uh, his, his late writings on the Jews are the ones that are um, most famous, most offensive. Um, early on in his career, I mean, r- remarkably early, in fact, if, we, if one thinks he pins the 95 Theses uh, to the, the, the cathedral church in uh, 1517, um, he writes... Uh, that Jesus Christ was born a Jew in 1523, so only six years later. Uh, and part of that, I think, is uh, a sense uh, in that he's trying to to say that uh, Catholic approaches to, to Jews have been unnecessarily harsh, uh, that they've not given a good example of Christianity, that actually his Reformed version, that is a simplified, um, more... Um, uh, pious uh, version of Christianity uh, is better, and and indeed, I think sort of uh, harbors the 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 hope that the the proof of that will be um, demonstrated by the fact that many Jews will then convert to Christianity of a sort that he puts forward. And I think sort of, I mean, it's an underlying sort of facet of of Christian thought, but Reformation thought more broadly about where what role the Jews will have in the history of the history of the world and, and especially divine uh, history, and especially the idea that at the end times, Jews will convert to Christianity. That is to be, that is the long-term expectation. And in the Reformation era, and for people like Martin Luther especially, there is a belief for a range of reasons that they are living in those end times that the signs are all around them, that sort of the end of the world is coming. The advance of the Ottoman Turks uh, to, to the east, their, their, uh, their capture of Constantinople in 1453, the, at least as Luther suggests, that um, the papacy is now home to uh, the Antichrist, the sort of, the sort of this real attack on uh, the center of Catholicism. This is Christianity as he sees it, sort of Christianity in a process of collapse almost, but that's the context in which um, his new or restored version of Christianity, a purified version, can take, can take place. 
And there is an expectation that that great transition will lead into the last days, um, possibly quite quite rapidly. One of the things that really drives Luther through much of his career is a, a real sense of urgency. Um, and one sees it in some aspects of the, the Radical Reformation as well, that this is sort of, actually, we need to reform society. We need to, to, to make all these changes immediately because the end of the world is coming and we can't be sort of, we can't be caught napping. This needs to, to, to happen uh, immediately. And it really drives, I think, for, for Lutherans and some others to write prolifically, uh, to deliver endless sermons, to work themselves um, um, as many hours as they can possibly uh, muster, simply because this, this is, is really critical. For Luther, um, I think after that initial optimism and sort of this message that if we speak, if we present Christianity in a more accessible and engaging way and we put forward a message that uh, doesn't just treat the Jews as an enemy, they, they may then um, be more ready to come to us. That initial optimism rapidly falls away. There are maybe some interests demonstrated by, by Jews in his writings, but perhaps that, that, that interest tends to be rather more in a sort of an awareness of disruption within the Christian, um, the Christian majority rather than necessarily thinking, right, we, we actually see enough there to think about converting. And I think that disappointment, and it's disappointment for Luther, both with the Jews' failure to convert in anything like the numbers that he, that he hoped, but also with the failure of the Reformation movement to make the advances that, that he hoped it, uh, it would, um, lead to um, a wide range of uh, vitriolic, unpleasant writings um, in the last years of his life. He dies in 1546, but for the last maybe eight years at least, um, he's writing against a whole range of enemies, as he sees it, of his Christian of his Christian message. Um, all these people that have essentially sabotaged what he was trying to do, uh, and the Jews are certainly identified as as one of those groups. They have failed to acknowledge the Christian message, um, the the Christian message that ultimately he thinks is self evident. The New Testament for for Luther and for many Christians, the New Testament provides sufficient proof that Jesus is the Messiah. For Jews to reject that um, is baffling uh, to him and uh, and demonstrates either uh, ignorance on their part or stubbornness, a refusal to accept that. Um, of course, they see things very differently, but but that's that's his mind, his mindset, his worldview, uh, and that of many Christians in that time. That to to reject that kind of um, message uh, is it, it, almost inexplicable. Th- this very much builds on a medieval mindset in in many ways. Um, they're one of the the most famous decorations that sort of one can see on the outside of, of uh, a number of churches dating from the, the Middle Ages is a pair of statues, uh, Ecclesia and Synagoga, uh, representing the Christian church and the synagogue, or therefore Christianity and Judaism. And they are both uh, elegant women, but the, the, the character Synagoga um, 
typically is presented with a blindfold um, uh, and and holding perhaps uh, tablets uh, reflecting sort of the the, the biblical message and particularly uh, the the commandments of the Old Testament. But that is meant to um, reflect the idea that Judaism is blind to the Christian message, and even when it's done in that relatively sympathetic it's it, it's still uh, a beautiful woman uh, that is that is presented in in those statues that's the the underlying uh, accusation against Jews their failure to to accept what might be seen by Christians as as self-evident and then do we see evidence of the emerging Protestant communities having different relations with their Jewish neighbors or treating them differently from the existing Catholic ones? I think there there definitely is a difference. I mean, I suppose, and and certainly in 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 my book, I suppose for at least for um, reasons of of clarity and organisation, I tend to sort of work by different Christian confessions. That is, the different uh, groups in turn. So, looking at Lutherans, Calvinists, Anabaptists, Catholics, and in some ways. That's to kind of because each has its its own narrative, its own story. I suppose one of the things that I, I want still to to say within that framework is that actually to talk about a standard Lutheran view or a standard Calvinist view or a standard Catholic view uh, ends up being sort of uh, perhaps a little bit uh, too neat. Uh, and the reality is that even so, even within the the, the Lutheran context, some of Luther's uh, collaborators um, reject what he has to say uh, when in in his later career uh, they're much less inclined to to endorse particularly when in when he's sort of saying the, the blaming the, the the Jews for failing to, to to welcome the Christian message and recommending therefore very harsh treatment of uh, Jews uh, in 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 Christian territories, that they their houses should be smashed, their synagogues broke uh, broken down, they should be subjected to hard labour uh, and, and menial tasks, and so on. A number of his even his Lutheran collaborators say, "Hang on, no, that's that's going way too far." Yes, sort of we we want to to bring them to understand a Christian message, but there are other ways of doing that, um, and that may be more through persuasion and discussion uh, and so on. And and I, so I think it's it's important to say that sort of there is that that kind of positive dimension within Lutheranism. One can perhaps see it more more repeatedly, however, within the Reformed tradition, uh, and that kind of uh, perhaps a greater readiness to work with Jews and to incorporate Jewish scholarship in their uh, in their own research, their own biblical exegesis, uh, especially, and to draw on rabbinic lines of interpretation and and argument. And it certainly is the case that um, someone like John Calvin, for instance, um, does rather more explicitly draw on uh, Jewish lines of interpretation, uh, particularly in relation to the Psalms, but that this is sort of filtered into his uh, biblical writings uh, uh, more generally. And I think, again, uh, a number of his collaborators uh, within that broader Reformed uh, tradition similarly have rather more nuanced and, and, and at times sympathetic 
uh, attitudes, either working, uh, as I say, with Jews or more commonly Jewish converts, but but a greater readiness still to engage with Jewish uh, traditions of, of thought. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. That vulnerability to attack is, is one of the... Uh, almost the defining characteristics of the Jewish experience in the 16th and 17th century, that while they may be there and tolerated by the rulers, uh, by the, the local communities, it can all change in an instant. And I suppose the Reformation meant that there was a lot more plurality within Christianity. You had lots more religious pluralism, different confessions, so did that in a way make it easier for Jewish communities in that they were one of many minorities rather than the main religious minority? I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I mean I think again and and I mean one of the 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 broader contextual factors is I think I said towards the the outset that Jews uh, in roughly 1500 constitute perhaps 1% or, of the European population. Um, but they're not evenly spread. They had been expelled from England and France during the Middle Ages and in the, the late 15th century, perhaps most famously, they're expelled from Spain uh, by Ferdinand and Isabella uh, as well. And in those places that they, they find a, a more sympathetic home, um, places like Italy and the Holy Roman Empire, for instance, they, they're they not, again, universally sort of spread or spread evenly across those terrains. They may be found in some, um, those the, both those polities are broken up into many different parts, neither are unified uh, territories in this period. So it does mean that you might find um, Jews congregating in some areas and then no Jews whatsoever or virtually no Jews in adjoining territories. And that does make it easier for the Jews within reason that they they can move between those territories, um, which wasn't possible in a place like Spain, England or France, which have that kind of more centralized organization. Um, It does, I suppose, in sort of thinking about the difference between the Lutheran and Calvinist traditions mean that Jews are more part of uh, Luther's day-to-day world than they are Calvin's. And, and it's, it's certainly possible. I mean, it's difficult to, to prove con- conclusively, but it's certainly uh, the case that, that Luther is in Germany going to many places when he's going and delivering sermons and, and traveling and so on, that he's actually encountering Jews on a regular basis. For Calvin in France from where Jews had been expelled, and then Geneva, uh, from where they'd been expelled more recently. He's not got this day-to-day uh, encounter with uh, with Jews. Um, and that's, I suppose that's, that's true for a lot of a lot of Christians during this period. And sort of for, for some of those, uh, the Jews become a, a kind of an abstract enemy. I think it's, it is one of the, the real paradoxes of, of this, that the, the, perhaps the, the strongest or most famous anti-Jewish kind of messaging, uh, certainly in an English context, c- comes from something like Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice or Christopher Marlowe's um, Jew of Malta. Um, and in England, 
Jews had been expelled in 1290, and they're writing in sort of around 1600, so 300 years later, a country in which Jews had not at least had any official uh, presence there for so long. But Jews did, in that kind of uh, imaginary, uh, provided a focal point for certain Christian anxieties. But that's harder to sustain uh, in the longer term. And actually, again, as your question suggested, in that era of religious pluralism, when Christians, having gone from Christianity, a single entity, uh, give or take, in 1500, to a point maybe by the, the later 16th century, when it, it it is Christianity has fragmented into uh still Catholicism, though with some kinds of indiv- uh, divisions within it, and then Protestantism fragmenting sort of left, right, and center, Lutherans, and we use these kind of these terms to, to still impose coherence on it, though the Lutherans break into different trends, uh, the Reformed tradition, Calvinism, uh, the, 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 the Zurich tradition, others, the Anabaptists, a group that they wouldn't recognize, but sort of a whole range of maybe 15, 20 different radical groups, um, Puritans later, Quakers, uh, all of these different groups. And actually, in many territories, it is that rivalry between um, Catholic and Protestant or between Lutheran and Calvinist that actually is the more immediate threat to your uh, to the piety of your community. I think in this, in this period... Uh, I suppose it's one of the things about thinking about how how religion actually matters in this context. Some of it's theology. Some of it is about what does does a person like Luther or Calvin actually say and 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 their and their equivalents. But actually, quite a bit of it is what is it to be a member of a pious community? What is it to be a good Christian? What is it to have a good Christian society? And one of the the issues that such societies then have to work is, how do we deal with religious difference? How do we deal with people that don't fit in? And that might be Jews or Muslims or indeed converts from Judaism and Islam. But increasingly in this period of of, uh, uh, pluralism that the Reformation instigates, it can be other Christians as well. And they are as perceived as as much a threat to the sanctity, to the piety of a Christian community, because they're, they're, while they're Christians, they're doing their Christianity wrong. Uh, and I think sort of uh, they are kind of, because they are typically in greater numbers, they are a military threat uh, as well as a political, a social, and a cultural threat. Um, those religious divisions do then mean that the Jews become one of several religious others um, and and um, not necessarily the most pressing, the most threatening at any given moment. And then a lot of these threats ultimately spill out into military conflict, things like the Thirty Years' War, obviously there's a civil war here in Britain. Um, how do these affect the Jewish communities? Do they get caught up in the violence? They absolutely do, uh, and in, in different ways. I mean, I suppose... On the one hand, because they are they are often in communities, in societies, um, with the special permission of the rulers, uh, or they are given particular privileges to be there. And in times of war, um, rulers will then look to tax 
uh, or tax their, their Jewish inhabitants or to, to impose other levies and costs upon them um, uh, in, because of those straitened circumstances. So we need greater, greater resource. We're going to tax everyone, but the Jews will be subject to that uh, even more. And, and that, that is especially the case uh, during the Thirty Years' War. Um, but it's also the case that, 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 um, that just the, the, the nature of warfare does mean that a lot of uh, communities, whether Christian or Jewish, are caught up in, in, uh, in those conflicts, that uh, a marauding army has to find somewhere to stay, or it, it, it makes an attack on a city. Uh, and I think sort of, again, uh, the, the Jews uh, of many cities it, whether or not they're gathered together uh, in a in a ghetto so named, are are still clustered often together in adjoining streets. They they and and are are frequently identified, often wrongly, uh, but frequently identified as being uh, among the wealthier inhabitants. So if you've got a marauding army or you've got a a community that has been subject to uh, the deprivations that 20, 30 years of warfare brings, then the tensions rise uh, and the readiness of the Christian communities to to look around who looks like they're doing better than us. Uh, and if there is sort of uh, the, the kind of an anti-Jewish sentiment that is sort of perhaps been part of the the inherited uh, tradition. This may not have have had any recent cause, but is part of something that has been uh, discussed over the the generations. Then suddenly can spark back into life again. It can be given renewed vigor in those circumstances, and that can then often act as a sort of the the provocation to go and ransack the Jewish community. Uh, and I think that sort of um, that vulnerability to attack is is one of the uh, almost the defining characteristics of the Jewish experience in the 16th and 17th century. That while they while they may be there and tolerated by the the by the rulers uh, by the the local communities, it can all change in an instant, uh, and and often without them actually having done anything to to provoke uh, that. But suddenly the circumstances can change. Uh, and uh, and either the Christian authorities or the local population will will move against them, and sometimes it, I mean it, it's clear that the the political leaders in particular will use them as a effectively as a, a pressure valve. You've got a a population that is that is increasingly upset about how things are are working uh, uh, in that society, uh, and then. The, the leader who may have invited the Jews in may well have uh, long-term working relationships uh, with his uh, Jewish community actually realizes for political expedience, if I now attack the Jews, expel them or subject them to, to some extra layer of persecution, that may hopefully calm the rest of the population down. Um, equally, uh, the, the 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 population as a whole may similarly turn against the the Jews again as with uh, sometimes on on quite a slight provocation, um, uh, and so that that vulnerability um, uh, I think sort of really does uh, define or characterize the the Jewish experience uh, through so much of this, and it's only exacerbated in times of war. Now I appreciate that. 
it might be hard to generalise, but do we have a sense of how the Jewish communities themselves felt about the Reformation and the changes going on in the Christian communities around them? I suppose, I mean, in, in my book, and I, I've, I've, I've looked much more at the Christian uh, perspective on this, I think sort of, I mean, one of the, the things that it, it's, it's often, uh, often suggested that sort of the Reformation almost entirely passes the Jewish communities by uh, in, some, in some respects. Uh, I think sort of, you know, they, they go from being uh, assaulted or subjected to, to the various things that I've talked about from one big Catholic Christian community to a series of different Protestant and Catholic communities, and their sort of their day to day experiences aren't necessarily very different. Um, but I think there, I mean, there there is perhaps more to say there. I think, as I alluded to earlier, there is a little bit. Uh, well, actually, there's real enthusiasm when the Reformation. Uh, first comes on the scene when Luther begins his challenge against the Catholic uh, Church. And there is a a lot of uh, Jewish reports alluding to Luther uh, seeing him as some kind of savior, somebody that is putting forward a a message that is more sympathetic to them. So it's clear that uh, a number of members or members of different Jewish communities are reading both some of Luther's writings and certainly are well informed about what he is what he is saying. As I, as I suggested, there may be more a case of seeing that this looks this this could be good news because it looks like Christianity is self-destructing, uh, and sort of this may mean that our our fortunes as Jews uh, uh, are are enhanced. But I think sort of after after that, then then there's a sort of it it maybe sort of shifts more to pragmatism and uh, working out what is actually a, a, a viable means of working with uh, the Christian majority in those societies where they are allowed to be there. So again, in maybe a place like uh, Spain, we're maybe talking more about uh, converts, uh, conversos, as they're, they're, they're often known, but in, in whether in, in Protestant um, Germany, Catholic Italy, um, it's ways of finding how to exist in a Christian, uh, predominantly Christian society. So some of that then means um, self-control and self-restraint. And I think that's one of the really striking things is the way that, again, for the the reasons of vulnerability that I was talking about before, uh, the Jewish leadership actually will often exert considerable control over its members. They are aware of how easily Christians might turn against them. So there's a conscious uh, policy of not doing anything that might antagonize. Uh, so that might be saying, you know, at Easter, for instance, Christians will go out and, and do these celebrations. We're all going to stay indoors. So sometimes that can be sort of the, the Christian authorities will say, you must. But actually, sometimes the Jews will almost impose that on their members and say, we know how they react if, if we're seen out and that anything we do, they'll take offense at. So let's just avoid that problem. Let's stay indoors on those critical days. Let's, uh, and again, this becomes apparent in the Netherlands, especially in places like Amsterdam, um, while they may be allowed a place to worship, they will keep it very low key. Uh, it will just be a synagogue that takes place in somebody's home. Um, so it's it's 
it is known by the the Christian inhabitants that that's what is what is what is happening. Um, but at the same time, it is not. Uh, a synagogue being placed in the center of the city and kind of giving that physical um, uh, face to the Jewish presence. So there's there's kind of moderation there. Similarly, uh, in terms of censorship, and one sees this uh, perhaps uh, especially uh, in Catholic countries, that um, Jewish uh, communities, when they're publishing uh, books in Hebrew, will actually... Um, liaise with the the, the Inquisition, uh, will liaise with the, the Catholic authorities um, before publishing a book. Uh, and and so this is so that they don't fall foul uh, of uh, censorship after the matter and sort of say, we, we, we know what you don't like and we'll miss this out or we'll be very careful, especially in terms of publishing the, the Talmud. And that's the most, the most provocative. That's the, the kind of uh, Jewish uh, immediately sort of post-Old Testament learning and reflections uh, and so on. Um, that is most uh, provocative or, or sort of difficult for Christian authorities to accept. But for many other Jewish writings, there is an awareness and a readiness to sort of say, we'll make sure that nothing uh, controversial is published. We'll look after this. And uh, I think sort of uh, that it's that kind of level of pragmatism uh, and expediency uh, that actually allows, in many instances, good relations. And uh, and that is often, you know, that sort of um, Jews restricting what they what they do so this is it's absolutely not uh, a meeting of of equals here but it's a it's a way of taking um control and and trying to mitigate uh, some of the tensions that might otherwise uh, arise now by the time that the reformation comes to an end and i realize there's a lot of debate about when that is but would you say that judeo-christian relations were better than before it started, were worse, or were still similar? I mean, that's, that's in some ways, that's the million-dollar question that, I, that I'm trying to, to wrestle with in, in, the, in the book. Um, I think, and, and I suppose, I mean, the, the grand narrative across, across the book, or at least the, the, the broad phases, certainly leads one to that kind of general pattern. So, um, Starting out in the in, in sort of around the period of 1500 is the the and further wave of expulsions of Jews. Um, so in 1500, there are there are fewer Jews in Western Europe uh, than at any time over the previous thousand years, and through the 16th century, there is then sort of um, actually probably heightened tensions. Uh, between the two, as Christians become ever more concerned about uh, the, the the sanctity, the piety of of, of the the world around them, and uh, Jews become one of the the obvious uh, pressure points and often sort of victims of that. But things, in a sense, sort of um, even out, and there is it becomes a more nuanced and sophisticated uh, and complex. Uh, uh, response to to a Jewish presence and Jewish learning uh, through that that period, and by the 17th century, Jews are then starting to be integrated uh, more widely and welcomed back uh, into uh, places in Western Europe. So, uh, spreading across uh, various parts of of Germany uh, into the Netherlands, uh, and then uh, in the 1650s, uh, readmitted uh, back into. 
uh, to England. And I think that kind of there there again there are, there are multiple explanations and sort of whether whether that's all down to the reformation is probably sort of would be to overstate my case but i think sort of I, my underlying belief is that the reformation certainly helps prepare the way for some of that uh, some of that shift at the same time that's not to say everything is now um perfect for the for the Jews, even in many of those places where they are uh, readmitted. And I think England is a good example of that. Um, they are readmitted, at least in part, in the sort of the theological arguments around this, on the assumption that this will facilitate their ultimate conversion to Christianity. Um, so this isn't, I mean, it's a sort of a broader theme, uh, that what we actually understand by toleration in this period. Um, and certainly the, the Puritans in particular who make the argument we should let uh, Jews into England for religious reasons sometimes are, are dis- described as uh, philo-Semitic or, or that sort of, that attitude as philo-Semitism. Again, for the, the reasons that we talked about before, the Semitism bit of, of this is uh, is not an ideal term, but that philo or kind of suggesting that this is a uh, uh, a positive uh, attitude towards Jews. It's certainly positive compared with maybe the, uh, Luther's statements, for instance, but it's not yet an acceptance of Jews on their own terms. It's not just saying, we want to let Jews come into England and live and worship as they choose. The argument is being made on the grounds that, again, uh, that this is um, part of their conversion to Christianity is part of that uh, those last days, the the end of the world, uh, and um, I think sort of now uh, that uh, as they as they believe Jews are to be found in all corners of the world, um, that this is a sort of except England, it's then almost embarrassing, especially for the English. How can England be the home of the new world that will emerge, as as the the many of the English hope, if we don't actually have any Jews who will convert? So I think there's sort of they are by by the end of. Uh, the 17th century, Jews are in many more places um, than they than they were before, and they have uh, perhaps a better um, experience than was the case at 1500. But there were many limitations on that. And actually, I mean, again, there's sort of there's almost a sort of a paradox within that. It is in those places where Jews are given greatest liberties, and this is true through the 16th and 17th century, where they are allowed greatest freedom, that often the strongest reaction against that will emerge, that this again becomes becomes a contentious point. And sort of uh, in the uh, the Whitehall Conference uh, in the 1650s, when, when there is discussion uh, whether Jews should be readmitted to England, there are very strong arguments put forward on both sides on both religious and economic uh, grounds and sort of great anxieties. And and it, it is certainly the case that sort of by the 18th century again, pressures uh, are renewed so, uh, against the Jews and, and uh, efforts to, to uh, really restrict uh, what Jews can do in England and elsewhere. So it, it's not, a, it's not, I think sort of by 1700, things are better. Some of that is because of what the Reformation was doing. Some of it is almost despite what the Reformation was doing. And and sort of above all, however, it's still 
an ambivalent situation. It is still one where um, there is, even where the gains have been made, there are still obstacles. There is still the chance of uh, local animosity. There is still the chance of uh, being subject to to, to pressures uh, and so on at, um, at any moment. So I know this is outside the scope of your book, but to what extent does the Reformation influence Judeo-Christian relations in subsequent centuries? I think one of the, the things that the Reformation does, uh, and it does this from both uh, the Protestant and Catholic sides, and I think sort of through this book, um, I do talk about reformations uh, or, or that 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 implied range of uh, reform movements, Catholic and Protestant. They give new attention to Judaism and Jews, both contemporary. Uh, and and uh, in the in the the Old Testament, and they sharpen the tensions between Christian communities. So they they provide a new way, I think, of the different confessions competing with each other. Uh, so uh, whether that is in terms of biblical scholarship, understanding Jews. Uh, and their experiences, and so on. So one of the things that not only are Christians thinking about, how do they make the case that that their religion or their version of Christianity is the superior one? Um, Part of the argument that they make there is that it's the most authentic, it is the one that is closest to, or that best echoes the message that they found uh, in the Bible, and the Bible therefore needs to be understood. In order to understand some of the cultural resonances, this isn't just a linguistic uh, activity, but to to understand the the cultural resonances, they need to better understand the Jews uh, that live amongst them. So uh, a whole uh, slew of texts are written, sometimes described as ethnographies, a kind of early form of social anthropology. And that might mean that the author goes and spends time in a synagogue or working, living with uh, Jewish uh, families to understand what they believe, how they practice, in the hope that this will then help them understand. When we read this in the Old Testament or indeed the New Testament, this is what Jesus or or whoever was doing. What were they actually thinking? And that kind of that understanding. And I think that that kind of um, greater engagement that the Reformation provokes both on the Protestant side but replicated on the Catholic side. I think that does have a longer-term legacy, that there is a case of thinking about, um, again, the the long-term relationship between Judaism and Christianity uh, over sort of hundreds, thousands of years. And thinking about, I think there is an appreciation of that tension. Yes, these these are sort of linked together in that Judeo-Christian tradition, the Christians are trying to distinguish themselves from the the Jews, uh, but at the same time finding numerous echoes. Uh, and actually, I think sort of perhaps the the strongest positive legacy from the Reformation is that effort to really come to better understand. Uh, the Jews that live in their in their midst. I think sort of part of the problem, especially sort of in that era of 
expulsions is that the Jews go from being a neighbor to an imagined entity. Uh, and in, in that sort of realm, it is much easier for the the most alarming stories to kind of, to sound a bit more plausible. Actually, once Jews are readmitted and their their religion is better understood, Christians start to realize some of the things that at least that we have said about Jews are palpably false. This simply cannot be true. Um, uh, and I think sort of that longer term uh, legacy at least uh, uh, is is a positive one, even if it's a, an indirect one. That was Kenneth Austin. The Jews and the Reformation is out now, published by Yale University Press. And do visit historyextra.com for plenty more on the Reformation era. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Newitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear Robert Coles on the history of sport in England. Music